0: So last week, we looked at all of the covenants on the screen except for the last one, which is the Davidic covenant. We're going to look at that today. Uh, the the land covenant with Abraham and the Davidic covenant uh, are probably the two that have the most significance for us, And uh, assuming that we will be here when Jesus returns. Um, but anyway, we're not doing eschatology today. That's for another, another week, but I, I will have to talk about it a little bit today. If you missed the last couple weeks, it's all on YouTube, it's on our website, and you can look at that. It might help clarify some of the things that we've already discussed. I will review. Anyway, uh, so in the whole discussion of covenants, we wanted to define it, and we said that a covenant is a contract. It's an agreement between two parties where one or both parties agree to fulfill certain terms and conditions. (coughs) We would say obligations responsibilities to the other party. But in the Bible, we often see covenants that are what we would call unilateral. And a unilateral covenant in one, rather, only one party sets the terms and the conditions of the covenant, while the other party remains completely passive, completely passive. They, they do not agree to the covenant. They don't disagree necessarily with the covenant. They just receive it. They just find themselves in it. And for that reason, these particular contracts or covenants are called covenant promises many times. Uh, We didn't talk about this particular passage last week, but it is a part of the land promise that was given to Abraham. And the the one in Genesis chapter 15 is the ultimate unilateral covenant anywhere in Scripture, anywhere, okay? In that chapter, uh, before God makes the covenant with him, he, he puts Abraham to sleep. He puts Abraham to sleep. He gives the promises, the terms, and all of that. And uh, by the time Abraham wakes up, it's all done. He just wakes up with himself in a covenant. He couldn't have disagreed if he wanted to. He couldn't have agreed. And uh, it's com- he's completely passive. That's a serious unilateral covenant. We also see in the scriptures these covenants that are unconditional, Unconditional, meaning that the recipient of the unilateral covenant bears no responsibilities, and therefore he cannot do anything to break or change the covenant. As we said briefly, he doesn't believe in the covenant necessarily. Uh, I think it would be beneficial to believe in it, but he doesn't have to. He cannot break the covenant because he has no responsibilities in the covenant. Um, He can't do anything good. He can't do anything bad to compromise what has been promised. Because the covenant is unilateral, it's unconditional, <clears throat> and it's, all of it is upheld by the one who made the covenant. And of course, that is God himself. We looked at three of those covenants last week. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> we looked at the Adamic Covenant, we looked at the Noahic Covenant, and the Abrahamic Covenant. And we even gave some arguments for the unconditional and unilateral nature of especially the Noahic Covenant. Because if the Noahic covenant has conditions, what would happen? Because we'd be sinful. We would be flooded over and over and over again. And if it was on an individual basis, I would be flooded every day. Okay? So it's unconditional. Uh, now, these particular covenants that we talked about, they're, they're not only unilateral and unconditional. They're also eternal. Aren't you glad? There's not like you know, a shelf life or an expiration date. Uh, they're, didn't you do that last week? Maybe I should get my own water on my way up here. So, thanks, Joe. Yeah, they are eternal. They're irrevocable. More of that. Those covenants, they're permanent. And so God's integrity, not man's, is the surety of the covenant, which is a good thing. It's a really good thing. (laughs) For example, when there is a conditional, or what we would call also a collateral, covenant between God and man, uh, things do not and have not ever gone well because man lacks so much moral integrity. He cannot keep up faithfulness. It's just not what we're made of at this time. He doesn't keep his part of the deal. And so to illustrate this, we have the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Uh, This was a collateral and a conditional covenant To which Israel, after hearing all of the terms and the conditions, they said, yes, we will do that. And Moses even said to them, no, you won't. He was a good prophet, right? Not just knowing the future of what would happen, because he predicted their fall, but he also knew human nature very well. Okay, Um, Those kind of covenants with man do not go well. They end in failure. And so what we have is we have generation after generation they violated the covenant through idolatry, through immorality, through unfaithfulness. And um, it could not work, it would not work because of our unfaithfulness. So something different was needed. Some other arrangement with Israel was imperative. And so the Lord said to them, listen carefully, this is about, about a thousand years after the covenant was made at Mount Sinai, and it was the generational Um, just unfaithfulness. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah, the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 30, 33. Now the, the same uh, prophetic promise given to Jeremiah was also given to Ezekiel <clears throat> some years later, but it's, it has more details to it. This is what God said to Ezekiel, he said, Ezekiel, say this to the house of Israel. This is when they are in captivity in Babylon. Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations, wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. And here it is. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, that is, out of your body, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Seven times God says, I will. And Israel is the passive recipient of the covenant promise. It's beautiful. Uh, Does God ask them if they agree? Does he ask them to concur to believe it, to do anything. No, it's seven times God makes promises to Israel. I will do this. The surety is based upon my shoulders. It's upon my integrity. You bear nothing. It's just a promise. Yeah. So really God knows that if Israel, like the rest of humanity, if they are to succeed, they, they will have to be in a covenant relationship with God, but that covenant will have to be unilateral. It'll have to be unconditional and irrevocable. As we now have in the new covenant that's what we need okay promised way back in jeremiah and then promised in ezekiel but it was ratified on the cross at calvary with christ's blood and if man is to be faithful to god understand our faithfulness will have to be a product of his grace and not our moral integrity if it was based upon your moral integrity you would not make it we understand that right in the gospel of grace We are saved by grace, and then we are sanctified. We are conformed to the image of Christ by His grace. The reality is we are no better than Israel without His Spirit dwelling inside of us, administering, sanctifying grace. Now, the next couple of weeks after all this, uh, we will bring all of this stuff with the covenants. We've said this before. Uh, We're going to, more than anything, we're going to tie the Abrahamic covenant uh, into the, the throne covenants, covenant rather, and then we'll develop our eschatology from there. They're together, they're super important. <clears throat> now, when it comes to the promises of God, the covenants and all of that, uh, we can be assured that these promises will be fulfilled uh, because they're based upon God's integrity. God's integrity. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says that God cannot lie. How do you like that about God? He cannot lie. Hebrews 6.18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. And then Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. That doesn't just say something about God, nor a son of man that he should repent. So God never repents because he never sins. He, or sorry, has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So if God cannot lie, and if he is in fact sovereign, he will indeed keep his word, and there is nothing that can stop him. Not even our disobedience. Not even our unbelief. If God rests the responsibilities upon himself, and he does, then the promise will succeed. So because of these divine realities, we should be looking forward to a future time when ethnic Israel receives all of the land that God promised to them. And as we'll see today, in that land, a descendant of King David will rule with truth and justice. Let's let's look at it. So there you have, uh, that's where the two uh, Davidic uh, covenants are made, or we might say throne promises. That's them. We'll look at both of them in a minute. I'll read them to you. But I did want to begin by saying that last week in our discussion about the Abrahamic covenant, uh, if you disagreed with my conclusions there, uh, we are most definitely going to disagree today. Okay? Uh, but I want to say to everybody in here, even to myself, that, that that's okay, okay. I hope it's okay for you. It's okay for me that we have disagreement. Uh, the things that we're going to talk about, they're not fundamental to the Christian faith. Um, uh, they're not a salvation issue. They're not a deal-breaker. I can have fellowship and be friends with people when we disagree on these issues that we've been talking about, even though I'm extremely passionate about the conclusions I'm going to give you today. In fact, I'm completely unwavering, but I still have friends. They're just as unwavering as I am. Uh, as I told First Service, many of these people call me pastor. They do attend here. Some of them have attended here for years. Uh, we just do not agree, and, uh, and that's just that's the way it goes. So, I hope it's not a deal breaker for you. Also, I realize that for some of you, a lot of these things are new, and it's like drinking from a fire hose. Okay, Uh, that is a normal experience when it comes to uh, a lot of theology. It'll wear off. You'll get more. um, uh, You'll just spend more time in it, and it'll come together for you, and you'll come to conclusions. And I hope to sway those conclusions this morning. Let's begin. So, just as the Abrahamic covenant as we've said, is often referred to as the land covenant. The Davidic covenant, based upon its nature, is uh, usually referred to as the throne promise. Okay? The promise to David, uh, as you see, is up there. I'll get to him in a minute. Now, first, the context of the two passages begins with David. He summoned the prophet Nathan to himself. And he says, Nathan, I'd like to build a house for God. And what he means is, I'd like to build a temple. And Nathan said, do whatever is in your heart. It was very presumptuous. Something the prophet shouldn't do. Because later that night, the Lord speaks to Nathan and said, No, David is not going to build a house for me, but rather, I will build him a house. What God means by that is a dynasty. Going to build him a dynasty. So the Lord told to Nathan to report the following words to David. Here's what the prophet said. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold this is 2nd uh, Samuel 7 from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel and I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth moreover I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more notice a reference to the land promise Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established before you, or forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, I did not repeat that. That's in the text. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David." Now as you examine the, the details of this covenant promise, you can tell that God is, he initially is talking about David's immediate successor, who is Solomon. But he's also talking about, obviously, something more, someone beyond Solomon. Something more is this, he's talking about David's permanent house, David's permanent kingdom, and David's permanent throne. He says, all of these things will last forever. Solomon cannot be the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. It's bigger than he is. Now, the promise is also recorded in in 1 Chronicles 17, verses 1 through 15. And it reinforces some of the things with greater clarity. But the the chronicler, he's not so concerned with Solomon as much as what the promise ultimately refers to. I'm not going to read all of it again to you. I'm going to pick it up in verse 11. First Chronicles 17, he says to David, And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. The chronicler pays closer attention to this individual, the son of David, verse 11, whose throne will be forever, verse 12. His house is forever, verse 14. His kingdom is forever, verse 14. Also something very interesting, I don't have time to talk about it today, but a king dwelling in a temple, it's against the law. Something different about this individual, that he would dwell in the house of the Lord. That's all over the book of Hebrews. That's for another time. But all of this is established forever. Whoever this person is, he's going to reside in the house. He's going to rule over the kingdom on David's throne forever. I wonder who that is. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary, he said this, behold, uh, I want you to notice something that's not in the text. Mary, would you be okay with this? Do you agree to this? What do you think about this? No, it's a unilateral, unconditional promise. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel is obviously referring to the throne promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel 7 and 2, or 1 Chronicles 17. Christ alone, who is eternal, is the only one who could possibly fulfill this promise to David. The only one. Okay? The promise to David requires that an eternal person sit on the throne and rule forever. Consider the prophet Micah's words. He says, but you, Bethlehem... Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, meaning you're just a little city, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. That's a big deal, I think. No other ruler is described that way in the Bible. This ruler coming out of Bethlehem, God says, will reign in the land of Israel, the preposition is clear, And this ruler himself is an eternal person. He is from everlasting. He's an eternal person. We all know who that is. In 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, God is clearly, as the prophets clarify, referring to Jesus, who was born according to the lineage of David, but is the eternal son of God. Now, listen to the way that Paul uh, writes his introduction to the Romans regarding Jesus' dual sonship. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his holy prophets in the holy scriptures, or through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. His two natures come out very clearly in that passage, doesn't it? He's son of David in his humanity. He's son of God in his deity. Two natures, one person. He's the God-man. Okay? Now, he's not half man and half God. That would make him a freak. Okay? He's not. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. And because of who he is, he alone is able to fulfill the promise to David and the prophecies related to the throne promise. It has to be him. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now Jesse was the father of King David, and this branch is a reference to Jesus. Isaiah continues. He says, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that's the branch, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. How would you like to have government like that? The branch is mentioned again in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king. He shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Uh, not just Um, Lord as in Master, but Jehovah. His name will be called Jehovah, our righteousness. That's something, huh? Now notice how in a number of these prophecies, it keeps tying the land promise into the throne promise. They're connected. That'll be important later. Again, Isaiah refers to the promise made to David. You know this one. It's too bad that it's confined to Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a child is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. That's the responsibility of government. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here it is. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I like the sound of that. Notice again that concerning his government and the peace that is secured by it, there's no end. There's no end. It means as soon as he, he takes the throne, establishes his kingdom, there will be no end to peace. That's nice. He will sit on the throne of David. He says he will reign over the Davidic kingdom with justice and judgment. And I love it. Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We call that a sovereign decree, a sovereign decree. God puts his name on the promise like that. Okay. So the throne promise is here clarified, and the irrevocable nature of it is sustained. So in order to fulfill this promise, you guys listen, Christ must return. He must reestablish the throne of David and rule over the earth from Jerusalem, just as the texts say that. Now, I don't know what your view of eschatology is in the end times. Um, I honestly don't know how there's any other conclusion than what we have before us. He's going to come. He's going to rule. And that just makes me so excited. You know, I, I tell people often that you know, people like to debate about the date of the rapture. I have my position, uh, but... You understand, from the rapture into the second coming, the time between that, that is not God's uh, His, His final design for us. It's an intermediate state. We're to come back, and this is going to be our home. It's going to be renewed, of course. That's all exciting to be, but nothing compared to Christ's kingdom. Nothing. Could you imagine how it's going to just screw up everything when he comes? It's like no ballot boxes, no disputes. I could read you other passages that deal with all that, but we don't have time this morning. Yeah, Just the anticipation of his coming and his kingdom, his justice and his peace. I'm just so looking forward to it. Yeah. So his will being done on earth, not just in heaven. Of course, it's not right now. It's going to, as we've said, he cannot lie. He's sovereign and therefore nothing can stand in his way. Let's look back at the Davidic covenant. So by sovereign decree, This covenant promise is unilateral. God alone made the contract. David is a passive recipient. He didn't say okay. He did say thank you in the following verses, but he didn't say I agree, nothing. God promises him. He doesn't even ask any questions. This is where you're at, David. This is what you get. And then David responds later. I'll mention that briefly in a little bit. It's unconditional. God alone bears the responsibility for its fulfillment. David has zero obligations. He can't break the covenant. can't do anything. It's everlasting. It can never be set aside. It's completely irrevocable. And you guys, it is currently unfulfilled. It is currently unfulfilled, but it's on the horizon. Another thing that we mentioned is how the land promise, which is also unilateral, unconditional, and irrevocable, and currently unfulfilled, is attached to the Davidic covenant. It's always mingled in there, with it. You guys, these two promises will be fulfilled in tandem along with ethnic Israel's redemption, according to Romans chapter 11. It's good stuff. So, according to the prophetic picture of all things, we're looking forward to ethnic Israel dwelling in the land that was promised to them and to their fathers, at which time they will be fully redeemed. And most importantly, Christ will be sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem, from where he'll rule over Israel and the whole earth administering justice and peace. We're looking forward to an earthly messianic kingdom according to the sovereign decree of God. That's just so exciting. Okay. The question now that must be explored, that we'll get to next week, is when or during what period of history will these things take place? When will they take place? That is the study of end times eschatology. Now, as I said at the very beginning, I realize that there are people who disagree uh, to the conclusions that I've come to from these passages. Uh, they have objections. I want to address some of those. Uh, you may, as an objector, fit into one of these categories. You may not. If you do not, but you still object, come talk to me. I'd love to uh, address those with you. Some believe that the throne promise and the land promise, uh, that they're, they're conditioned upon an obedience. The throne promise on David's descendants, their obedience. And therefore, because it was contingent upon their obedience, it could be revoked. Trust me, if it was contingent on those boys, it was revoked Okay, by the time Solomon rolled around. Okay, So first thing, um, believing that it's conditional. There is absolutely no condition stated in the covenant itself. There is none. So all conditions must be invented by the interpreter. They must be. Okay, this is called eisegesis. It is a practice of putting foreign ideas into the text of Scripture that God did not intend to be there. We do not have the liberty as human beings to insert our ideas into a text. It's unethical. It's wrong. Okay? Uh, three times in the Scriptures, at the end of the law, in the middle of the Old Testament, at the end of the New Testament, says, do not add, do not take away. That's eisegesis. Stay away from it. There are no conditions in the text, so don't invent any. Second, disobedience cannot revoke the covenant because God himself said that disobedience will not affect the covenant. 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, this is what he said. If he, that's David's descendant, commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercies shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I remove from before you. You see, King Saul was on the throne conditionally. It's there in the text, okay? And therefore, when he disobeyed, he forfeited the throne and then his kingdom was turned over to David. But the covenant with David had no conditions to it. Okay? Cannot be affected by disobedience. Third, David discusses the covenant in Psalm 89. He looks back to the covenant promise that God made with him and listen to what he says. It's God speaking, Psalm 89, verse 28 through 37. He says, my mercy I will keep for David forever and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever. And notice that, his seed also I will make. Who, whose integrity is it based on? It's God's, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and is thrown as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Psalm 89, 28 through 37. Clearly, this covenant is unconditional. Fourth, after a thousand years of disobedience, okay, the promise to David was given in 1000 B.C., Gabriel shows up, thousand years later. Okay, and he reaffirmed after a thousand years of disobedience. He reaffirmed the promise in Luke chapter one, verse thirty and thirty-three, promising again that a descendant of David, which would be her son, would sit on David's throne and he would rule over the kingdom forever. Say that with me, forever. Okay. Finally, objectors. Others say that the promise made to David was non-literal. God didn't mean what he said. He didn't mean it literally as if it was going to be an earthly kingdom and throne, but a heavenly kingdom and throne. He wouldn't rule here. He would rule up there. That's the non-literal position. So I want to address some of this with you. First, the throne of David, and please listen to this carefully, the throne of David is never said to be or equated with the throne in heaven, not with God the Father's throne, not one time in all of the Bible. There is no indication in that covenant or any subsequent prophecy that the promise should be taken non-literal. What I mean by that is nothing in the text that would tip me off and say, oh, at this time, start interpreting allegorically or non-literally or figuratively. There's nothing in the text. There's nothing that would warrant me doing that. David, this is interesting, who was a prophet, did not understand the promise to be non-literal. In fact, in verse 18 through 29 of 2 Samuel 7, he goes on to thank God for all of the literal things stated in the covenant. Also, in the promise itself, at least half of it has already been fulfilled literally. Solomon was born to David. He did reign on David's throne. His kingdom was established, and he did build the temple. So the question is, for what reason would we interpret the other half of the promise non-literally, non-literally. Something that I often bring up in discussions with people is that all of the prophecies of Jesus's first coming, you know, the prophecies in the Old Testament about when Jesus came the first time, born a virgin in Bethlehem of Mary, lived a sinless life, died, rose again. Did all of those prophecies come to pass literally or figuratively? Did he die for us figuratively? Was he born in Bethlehem figuratively? Please say no. Okay, so if all of of the prophecies related to his first coming were literal, why would we say that the prophecies related to his second coming are non-literal? Why would they be allegorical? It's an interesting shift in interpretation. Another thing, the prophets in the Old Testament, they understood the promise to be literal as they expanded upon it, always connecting it back to the Davidic kingdom in the land of Israel, which God had promised to their fathers. Also, the angel Gabriel, When he communicated to Mary, he doesn't use figurative language. He's being very direct. He's being very literal, saying your son would be great. Was Jesus great? Was he the son of the highest? So then would he give him the throne of David? Most certainly. He'll reign over Israel forever. Will there be an end to his kingdom? No. It's all speaking very literal. The apostles, this is always interesting to me. The apostles were with Jesus for three and a half years, listening to his teaching. And then after the resurrection, they got 40 more days with him, with the resurrected Christ. You know what they talked about? The kingdom. And at the end of the 40 days, you know what the boys asked him? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And you know what Jesus says? The timing is not for you to know. He didn't say, what kingdom? He said, the timing is not for you to know. God has appointed that himself. Okay. John In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, looked forward to Jesus' return and reign over the earth. Another interesting fact is historically, uh, after the apostles died, the first 400 years of the church, almost every Bible teacher that we know of uh, was expecting an earthly messianic kingdom, almost every single one of them, until uh, a prominent view of the church shifted to non-literal methods of interpreting. But by my reading of the New Testament and church history, the early fathers believed in an earthly messianic kingdom because of what the apostles taught. A literal, earthly, messianic kingdom. They should be taken. All of these promises in the Old Testament, all of these covenants, they should be taken at face value, just as the biblical authors gave them and understood them. You have to realize something. If, if they heard the promise and it was non-literal, but they understood it to be literal as the text clearly shows, you realize that they knew absolutely nothing. Those Old Testament prophets knew absolutely nothing because they understood it to be literal when some people believe it was non-literal. It's interesting. I'm looking forward to Christ coming a second time. I'm looking forward to him you know, re-establishing and ascending the throne of David in Jerusalem. I'm looking forward to him ruling over the earth from there, and I'm looking forward to his justice and peace never ending. All right, that concludes uh, our study of the covenants. Uh, next week, we will get into the implications of these things regarding uh, the end times. What's going to unravel besides what we've talked about? And trust me, nothing is more exciting than what we've talked about, but everybody wants to talk about eschatology today because our world is so normal at this point. And uh, they are looking for something. So we'll talk about it. I'm not going to talk um, about current events. Um, I think that has a tendency to be what I call newspaper exegesis. And I don't want current events to interpret the biblical text. The biblical text needs to stand alone as the authority. And if we see things unraveling according to the scriptures, I think we should pay attention, Jesus said to. uh, But I'm not going to come into any final conclusions until, until he comes busting out of the clouds. Amen. All right, go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Well, Father, we could have read at least 25 more passages that talk about this unilateral, unconditional, irrevocable promise that you've made concerning the land, concerning the throne, God concerning our future. I thank you for the testimony of your word. If you had said it once, it would have been enough, but you're trying to be clear. And so, Lord, I just thank you. I pray, as David, not David, but as Paul said, take all of these things and encourage one another with them. We do not, as Christians, want to look at the end times grimly, Lord, because we are in your hand, and um, you're going to see us through to your intended end. So thank you. Lord, thank you for my church family. Just bless them today. Love on them and draw them closer to you. Lord Jesus, make them like you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Lord bless you guys. Have a good day.